0: This is Macro Horizons, Episode 8, Middle Range March, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Benjamin Herbert Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 4th, and a friendly reminder that madness is not limited to collegiate sporting endeavors. i-a-n dot l-y-n-g-e-n at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible.
2: This week was most notably characterized by a modest sell-off, which moved through several levels of support, but failed to redefine the range we've seen so far in 2019. GDP confirmed that Q4's growth was good, but below Q2 and Q3, and Paul's testimony stuck to the committee script of patience. So
0: Ian, what's your take? Thanks, Ben. It has been an interesting week. We did see a fair amount of in-range volatility, but it's in-range volatility that has occurred in the context of a backlog of economic data that showed real GDP, while the headline was a bit better than expected, the consumption figures disappointed. That's been a key theme of ours over the course of the last several quarters as we continue to watch the pace of consumption and the health of household balance sheets. In conversations with clients, one of the things that has been striking is the amount of pushback that we've received about the idea that there will be Four to six months at the beginning of 2019, in which the Fed attempts to walk back the uber dovishness displayed at the beginning of January. To some extent, the reasonably strong economic data bodes well for that aspect of the call, which does entail a reasonable amount of flattening of the curve a curve flattener very very consistent with our broader themes in the very short term although we ultimately expect it does give way to a cyclical steepening in fact the cyclical steepening that has been underway in 530s has arguably also extended out to the 10s 30s part of the curve 10s 30s has always been a somewhat perplexing spread particularly at the turn of a cycle That's not to say that we don't expect buying interest to emerge at some point, but the underperformance of 30s has been notable. In terms of the 10-year sector, the range between 260 and 280 persists, and while we had been tracking a very traditional descending triangle from a technical perspective, it hasn't played out the way that we anticipated Even though we have been in a relatively low volatility environment, there's still a chance for a retest of that 254 level in tens, although in the very near term, we'll be watching the extension of slightly more bearish momentum. Powell's recent testimony reiterated the commitment to the notion of patience, but what he didn't do is he made sure that hikes were not taken off the table. We continue to expect that the 5 to 10 basis points of easing priced in by the end of the year will become a point of contention for the Fed, and that will lead to incrementally more hawkish Fed rhetoric as the first quarter comes to a close. We did get confirmation that new tariffs are not going to be implemented, but that was largely consensus. And what we see is despite this renewed trade optimism, there has failed to be any consistent repricing. On the margin, some upward pressure on yields, but that didn't occur with a significant rally in the equity market. We've been watching the shift in terms of falling business sentiment carrying through to the consumer side with the obvious implications for consumption and the wealth effect. What we recently saw was a spike in consumer confidence, one that is clearly attributable to the very strong year-to-date performance in the equity market. Suffice it to say, if this continues, one would expect a further easing of financial conditions, which would give the Fed a little breathing room. We continue to expect that the Fed has pre-committed to end the unwind of the balance sheet, whether they acknowledge that or not. In fact, a lot of the bounce in risk assets since the beginning of the year has been based on the assumption not only that the Fed will be on hold, but they will also end the runoff of the balance sheet. If that isn't delivered in March or at the latest May, we would anticipate that equities would once again come under pressure, thereby forcing the Fed's hand. Nonetheless, that won't be this week's trade. Instead, we'll look for a consolidation towards the upper end of the trading range in yield terms as investors look to take a shot at dip buying in the event that 10-year yields manage to push up against that 280 range. In terms of the long bond with 30-year yields comfortably above 3%, we find ourselves a bit more reluctant to play for a fade of that at this moment as that steepening surely reflects a Fed that is willing to see inflation run towards the upper end of the range for even longer than previously expected. The slide of volatility is troubling only insofar as it implies we will see a more definitive break, and we're reminded that it's always darkest before the light goes completely out.
2: So a lot of the questions that we've been getting recently have been particularly focused on the path of policy going forward and what we've learned from Fed speakers, the minutes, Powell's testimony to Congress. Nothing gets John Hill more excited than questions about the United States Central Bank. So I figured, John, this would be a good opportunity for you to let us know what you're thinking.
3: Thanks, Ben. The way I'm thinking about it right now is we have two major policy levers that the Fed can pull one being the price side of monetary policy via interest rates, and the other being the quantity side of monetary policy being the amount of reserves in the system or the balance sheet. So one of the kind of nuanced differences between the two is there seems to be a pretty unanimous decision that balance sheet roll-off is over in 2019. And now it's much more a question of Inside the details, how do they want to execute this? And generally the way that we're interpreting it as they want to not try to influence financial conditions with this lever anymore. They're much more focused on the demand for reserves and how do they make this change from roll off to a steady state or at least a flat balance sheet outlook for the time being without tossing around pricing. If anything, we kind of expect some marginal richening of treasuries to OIS, but in general, this should go on in the background without being the main story. On the other hand, the disagreement inside the Fed, and maybe that's too strong of a word, but you know, I certainly don't want to use schism or anything, but the debate maybe is focused on are they hiking again in 2019 or not? And it really seems that there are two camps. You know, Williams in this basically we're done camp. And it's not we're absolutely done. It's we're done unless there's a reason to move. Um, So that's camp one. And then camp two, you know, with people like Mester or Bostick in it, would be, well, if my baseline outlook for the economy is confirmed, the underlying strength is sufficient that it justifies another rate raise. And the takeaway from that, I think, is twofold. One, the committee doesn't know, and they shouldn't know. We need to see how the data comes in. We need to see how things progress. We need to see what the damage of tighter financial conditions in December was. And two, it's still a debate about whether to hike or not. There's a lot in the market that are starting to consider the possibility of cuts being equally weighted with the next move being higher. Our sense is that's too early. Certainly possible, especially if things turn over, a trade deal falls through, we go through a hard Brexit and things get kind of concerning around the world. But that should not be seen as the baseline scenario. It is still a question of to hike or not. And as that kind of gets absorbed into market pricing, this should be bearish for the front end and lead to a bit of a flattener.
2: So just to kind of boil it down a little bit, what you're saying is really what we've seen now is a kind of split at the committee as what makes further rate hikes warranted. The delineation there being if the outlook that Fed Speaker X has is met, more rate hikes. On the other hand, you have the outlook being met isn't good enough for me to advocate for more rate hikes. I actually need to see an acceleration versus my baseline. And that difference is really the primary debate on policy going in 2019. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the Fed is being patient. And as strategists, you know, I hate to use the word boring, but what this means is they're not going to move in H1 this year. They're not going to change interest rates. And as much as we want to prognosticate about it back and forth, what this does is it gives them time to debate how they want to frame it and debate whether they would commit a policy error by raising rates further because that's something that they really want to avoid. One other point that I would flag is there's an irony in the Fed's patience and data dependence. If they really are patient, then that means that they're not going to react as much to any incremental data point. So You know, the irony is that by being patient, they're going to be less responsive to any individual data point. Either they would need the totality of information to point in one direction, or they would need something to really flash hard, either in acceleration or deceleration mode, to kind of catalyze them to move. So the irony of a patient data-dependent fed is that it might lead to a little bit less volatility around data releases. This only serves to further suppress volatility, which traditionally is considered positive for financial conditions. And
2: as you said, really, the crux of the conversation is on whether or not more hikes are warranted or whether or not kind of staying where we are is warranted. Still, even the most dovish members of the committee aren't seriously entertaining the idea of cuts anytime soon. And as you said, that points to a flatter curve. Ian, do you want to weigh in on what you think this means for the curve?
0: Ah, the age-old question of what it all means for the shape of the curve. Obviously, this year is poised to be more about the shape of the curve than it is about the outright level of yields, particularly in the 10- and 30-year space. We've been on about the idea that 2's 10s will invert, and while we do think the next 75 basis points in 2's 10s will be steeper, not flatter, there is a solid chance that the curve will push flatter from here and continue to invert. Obviously, the inversion in twos, fives has persisted. We would expect that to continue, if not extend somewhat. At its essence, the market is simply saying that while the probability of a rate cut over the next two years is relatively low at this moment, the probability is much higher for a rate cut between years three and five. Intuitively, that simply reflects the fact that the market is looking beyond the current tightening cycle and into the next, which presumably will be a shift easier to address a more troubling economic outlook. The only way at this point in which twos-tens inverts is if the Fed continues to push the pendulum of monetary policy sentiment further away from dovish back toward the middle. Call it incrementally more hawkish, although it will be quite some time before the Fed has a truly hawkish stance. That being said, it's safe to say that the Fed is, on the margin, uncomfortable with the amount of rate cuts that are being priced in for 2019. And so, as the FOMC and Fed speakers begin to walk the market back from that, what we would expect to see is upward pressure on front-end rates. Fives, 30s, on the other hand, is a completely different story. The steepening that we have seen, we believe really signals the broader shift to the cyclical re-steepening that we have been anticipating to occur in twos tens. The fact that five thirties is leading the way isn't that surprising and frankly, reflects what we have seen in prior cycles. We continue to be impressed by the performance of domestic equities. Obviously, the correction that we saw to end 2018 has seen a fair amount of the negativity reversed. We've actually had a very strong year-to-date performance in the equity market. What this means and the correlation between strong equity market performance and the lack of upward pressure on treasury rates, I think, is very important. I think it is important for several reasons, not least of which the reaction in risk assets has been to a shift in monetary policy assumptions. And so if the Fed, for example, were to hint of being incrementally less dovish and push forward on the rate hike front, we would expect equities to take a hit. And the transfer mechanism between increased equity volatility and tighter financial conditions is now remarkably clear to the treasury market. What is just as striking is the fact that The equity market, to a large extent, really assumes that the Fed is going to follow through with the end of the balance sheet unwind. The Fed has, in their efforts to imply a reasonable amount of flexibility on the balance sheet front, they have arguably, inadvertently, locked themselves in to the taper of the balance sheet unwind. Presumably, we get that announcement sometime in the first half of the year, whether that is at the March meeting or the May meeting remains to be seen, and that's accompanied with a timeline that gets the balance sheet runoff to completion by the end of the year, if not slightly earlier. One of the questions that I've been hearing a great deal while on the road has been, well, what does that mean for treasury issuance? As we know, the way that the Fed currently participates in auctions is as an add-on, and so that means in practical terms, the amount of Treasury debt that the Fed is purchasing doesn't actually hit the market. So what really matters is how is the Treasury Department going to adjust the way in which they borrow as a result of the fact they will need to do incrementally less borrowing given the balance sheet runoff has stopped. We think the bulk of this is going to play out in the very front end of the curve. As the Treasury Department has illustrated, they have a willingness to change bill auction sizes far more quickly than anything further out the curve. The implications from this for the shape of the curve are twofold. It does add to the potential for a steepener sooner rather than later, and as such provides a bit of a headwind to the twos, tens, inversion call. That said, the Fed doesn't care as much about twos, tens, or fives, thirties, even, as they care about three-month bills versus tens. And a quick glance at that chart shows the correlation between the flattening in three-month bills versus tens and corporate profitability on a year-over-year basis is very solid. What is most notable is that the three-month bill versus tens Curve leads a downtick in corporate profitability when the curve is flattening by about a year and a half. So, the massive flattening in the treasury market that we've seen, that really commenced in the middle of 2017, has yet to fully flow through to the corporate side. That's a space that we are going to be watching very closely in the coming months. There is the ongoing question of how tight labor markets have translated to remarkably little inflation and what that actually means for the direction of monetary policy. On the one hand, always a very healthy sign to see unemployment low. The unemployment rate has been remarkably low at a point when labor market participation has also been stubbornly low. We would like to, conceptually at least, see labor market participation inch up more meaningfully For the same unemployment rate, but simultaneously, if this is as good as it gets in the employment market and we still haven't seen the transfer through via the Phillips curve to realized inflation, we might be faced with the situation in which the Fed has to grapple with the realities of a higher real policy rate even while they're on hold if and when inflation underperforms. This in and of itself will create a policy challenge for the Fed. Not only will they be inadvertently tightening because inflation has undershot their own forecasts, but it will be occurring at a point when they've already moved to an on-hold stance with a clear path to the end of the balance sheet unwind. This brings us to the operative question at the moment, and that is, what would it take to warrant the Fed to cut rates? Right now, the Issues all seem to be focused on overseas developments, whether it's the situation in China, whether it is the situation in Europe. There are a number of headwinds for the global economy. We're confident that an external shock via the global economy won't be enough to warrant rate cuts in this environment unless it translates through to risk assets in a far more dramatic way. Our baseline assumption is is that the damage done to business confidence has started to flow through to consumer confidence, although admittedly we've seen some mixed reads on that front recently. It really isn't until we see a retracement of the consumer that we will start to get more concern that the Fed will need to cut rates. 2019 was never really expected to be a good year for economic growth compared to 2018. Expectations have been ratcheted lower, but certainly in 2019, market expectations are not for a zero or a sub-zero print on real GDP. In that eventuality, what we would expect to see is the Fed react far more quickly, given the experience of January of this year, and that would lead the market to more aggressively price in rate cuts. It's somewhat misleading to look at the Fed Fund's futures market and say, oh, there's 8 or 10 basis points of easing priced in, so that's, call it, 40% chance of a cut. In fact, if and when the Fed cuts, they'll most likely do it in increments of 50 75 basis points. So, in that context, the odds currently being priced into the market are far less troubling. In fact, if we look historically, the futures market does a very good job of pricing to the foreseeable future, which in practical terms is six to eight months. But we do it on a rolling basis. So, at this moment, with the Fed now on hold, Every meeting at which they signal that they are going to be on hold will push the curve further out to price in not an ease by the end of this year, but a potential ease toward the middle of 2020. That process will put upward pressure on the very front end of the curve, the two year sector in particular, and again, at least marginally contribute to our bias to see twos, tens push flatter even from here. Again, the big move of this year is going to be timing the cyclical re-steepening, but that doesn't mean that we won't have a few more basis points of flattening, presumably beyond that nine basis point cycle low. We're seeing volatility very low in the rates market, both in implied and realized fall. Historically, This is what a technician might characterize as a coiling market. We're holding a range as the market waits for additional inputs for the next directional impetus, as the market awaits for another directional tell from where we have been. This isn't atypical for a period in which the direction of monetary policy has reached an inflection or a pivot point, which we really expect to be this year's story. There will be moments in which it looks as though the Fed will be able to continue with another rate hike or two, and there will be moments in which it appears evident that 240, in terms of the effective Fed funds rate, is the end of the cycle. Low periods of vol are invariably followed by a spike, And it's that spike that we'll all be trying to time. In that context, the fact that sentiment has shifted so far toward the dovish side suggests, at least to me, that when we see the spike, it's going to be a spike toward the pain trade, which would be an incrementally more hawkish fed. Again, we think any negativity gets played out in the very front end of the curve, particularly as the realities of a slower global growth file become increasingly evident. Suffice it to say, we're very empathetic to the FOMC's wait-and-see stance, though there could be a change coming very soon.
2: Two of the most commonly cited risk events on the horizon at this point, I think, are obviously trade negotiations with China, the potential of a hard Brexit or maybe a delaying of that deadline. But it's also important to consider we're really coming up on the debt ceiling debate.
3: Yeah. And for context, the debt limit has been suspended for a while. And what that means is there's no hard number that the debt limit actually is. It's being reimposed on March 2nd, actually, given the amount of debt outstanding at the time. This has been leading to some volatility in cash management bills or a little bit in money markets. But so far, the consequence is relatively small. The big question, when we think of the debt limit, the real hard Deadline that we think of is when are extraordinary measures exhausted and when might Treasury start to basically run out of money in order to pay its bills back? As of now, current forecasts put that somewhere in, let's call it July, August, September, Q3 of this year. The reason why the error bans are so big is some of this also has to do with tax receipts, and it has to do with tax refunds, and it has to do with outlays, because the government is going to continue paying its bills. So if it was just a question of financing, that would be a little easier to predict. But in reality, these error bans are huge, leading to a relatively unknown stress point at some point in Q3 this year. And as a result, that uncertainty has really reduced any impetus for stress or impact on financial markets as of yet.
2: And to that point, you know, you highlight the pricing impact and what may come of that kind of later on this year, August, September, what have you. And one thing we've seen is August maturity bills trading a little bit cheaper than their counterparts. And that kind of opens the door to the question of, well, is this focused on the start of what may be some debt ceiling worries, or is it more an auction-related focus? And I think as time has gone on, what we've seen is that it's consistently the six-month tenor rather than consistently August. And that speaks more to the kind of kink we're seeing in the front end of the yield curve. And this sort of supply dynamic is consistent with the upward sloping bill curve, at least out to one year, while policy expectations are still essentially flat.
3: And you say out to one year, it's worth noting something we've picked up that there's a bit of a hump in the treasury curve, especially in coupons. Now we're talking, you know, five, 10 basis points here, but somewhere around the 12, 18 month tenor, it seems like there's a pretty good opportunity to put money to work to pick up some incremental extra yield. And why we think that area of the curve is so cheap largely has to do with primary dealer positions. If you look at the two-year and under bucket, they're at near all-time record net longs for primary dealers. So in essence, the street has sold a lot to the sell side, and the sell side has a lot on their balance sheet. So they're a little bit cheap in order to try to get them off. So this seems like an attractive use of money for people who are trying to figure out where to allocate on the front end of the curve.
2: Another thing worth highlighting, just as it pertains to supply more broadly, is the front end auctions that we saw this week confirmed the trend, or now I would consider it a trend, that direct bidders are showing up a bit more aggressively at auctions.
3: Why do you think that's direct, and who do you think might be behind the directs?
2: Well, I think that really is the operative question, and that's what a lot of people are focused on. And given what we saw in January, where there was a high share of the auction given to direct bidders, what that ended up being was domestic investment funds showing up bidding aggressively at the auctions and taking down that share. Now, the second level question of that is why some of these accounts might be choosing to bid directly or indirectly. And the straight answer is we don't really know because none of that information is available to the public. It's all kept under wraps at the Fed. So it's an interesting development that we're definitely tracking in the primary market. And it's at least I think it's going to be something to watch going forward.
3: Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why we talk about non-dealer demand a lot of the time is it's becoming increasingly difficult to say whether indirect or direct is any specific type of person specifically, unless we correspond it with the investor class data And it sounds like last month
0: was a nice example of that. In the week ahead, the biggest question is going to be whether or not to fade the recent sell off and the steepening in twos, tens, or let the price action play out into the economic data. We are by nature contrarians. And so when price action extends in the fashion that we have seen, particularly with the recent sell off, that has very little in terms of a fundamental driver, we tend to view this as an opportunity to position from the other side. In this case, that would be consistent with the notion of dip buying and consistent with the idea of reestablishing flattening positions to play for a move back to that nine basis point flat in twos tens for this cycle. That said, in a low volatility environment such as this, we're very cognizant that the market could break out more dramatically and such a repricing wouldn't necessarily need to have the type of fundamental drivers which might justify a comparable move when we weren't at such low vol levels. We also find ourselves reminded of the low vol environment that we saw last summer when 10-year yields were in a very narrow range for multiple trading sessions and rates ultimately broke higher. We're not entirely convinced that this is a cautionary tale, although we are certainly aware of the breakdown between the correlation between higher equity prices and higher treasury yields. In fact, we would suggest we remain in the bad news is good environment for equities versus treasuries. Said differently, As long as the economic data is weak enough that it keeps a rate hike off the table, risk assets are comfortable drifting back towards the highs. For context, equities continue to perform particularly well with the S&P's year-to-date move, the strongest that we've seen since 1987. Remember 1987? Reagan was president. He gave his famous tear-down-the-Berlin Wall speech. Iran-Contra was a thing. The Dow crossed 2,500, not 1,000, for the first time in history. The Minnesota Twins won the World Series. Just had to throw that one in there. The world lost Andy Warhol, but gained Prozac as a consolation. It was also the year that the eldest member on our rate strategy team turned 10 years old. And oh, let us not forget, there was a massive stock market crash. We're not attempting to draw parallels with the equity market performance now versus then, However, the notion that we are at relatively lofty levels and the Fed has been steadily removing monetary accommodation over the course of the last several years certainly does leave us open to the idea that we might see a more material correction in risk assets. Nonetheless, as we look at the week ahead, Brexit and trade will still linger in the background. There are no major auctions to speak of. And in terms of specific levels we're looking at, in 10s, we like 262 as resistance. Beyond there, 254 is an obvious level. Support is effectively 280. If one wanted to get particularly technical, we'd be looking at 2.797, with a 74-day moving average just beyond there at 2.802%. We would like to conclude that it will be an exciting week in the treasury market, but with volatility the lowest that it's been since 1979, that's a hard sell even for us. So we'll simply continue to watch the range, fade any extreme moves toward the upside in yields, as we continue to expect some of the sideline buying interest will slowly start to scale into the market as more attractive rates become available. We've reached the point in this week's podcast at which we'd like to offer our condolences to all the listeners who have managed to make it this far. And if anyone finds themselves still unable to sleep, simply replaying this episode from the beginning at three-quarter speed should do the trick, although it's unclear what long-term side effects may result. In all seriousness, thank you very much for listening and for all of your support. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BEMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and VIMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of, or reliance on, this podcast. Vimo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast.